The Athletic. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. And here we are, the morning after the night before, where all of a sudden Manchester United drawing a football match feels very deflating, doesn't it? Uh, we'll do our best to pick ourselves up, though, and discuss and dissect exactly what happened at Selhurst Park. We'll preview an Arsenal match that won't feature Casimiro. A shake of the head from everyone, a la Eric Ten Hag, in the moments after that booking. And we'll also give you what we understand to be the very latest on a potential takeover of Manchester United. But because we enjoyed ourselves so much after that Manchester derby win altogether on Saturday, we've gathered... A full house once more. So it's a good morning to Carl Anker. Good morning, Ian. A good morning to Laurie Whitwell. Good morning, Ian. And a good morning, buenos dias, if you like, to Andy Mitten. Hi, Ian. Hello, everyone. Carl, you were there last night. I described it as deflating, crushing. A disaster was how someone that we won't name described it when we first started this uh, this call earlier. It was, though, wasn't it, a bit? Gutting, I think, was my immediate reaction. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure how many pe- listeners watched the, the it televised, but Ten Hag's face after the free kick goal was scored was quite telling. It was somewhere between a poker face and somewhere between I'm absolutely furious. <laughs> it's just you, 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 a, a very pronounced face that he's held for a couple of seconds. He's like, <sniffs> yeah, uh, with with a little mixture of sadness. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. that 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 face had started with the Casemiro booking, hadn't it? Yes, that was the first time. I saw his face looking anything like that. Uh, And it just all went downhill from there, Laurie, really, didn't it? Yeah, it was a ragged last 10 minutes, wasn't it? I mean, the second half was pretty loose. And I just felt that, you know, I was watching it with friends and um, we we were all feeling that this could be a late Crystal Palace equaliser. And and even when Elisa was stood over the free kick, I was like, either De Gea's pulling off an incredible save here again, or it's going in the goal. It, It just felt like that. I know it's kind of... Easy to say after the event, um, but I did. I even. I mean, I know De Gea pulled off. I think the best save I've seen him make in the first half against Edouard. I'm going to say it. We'll get into that in a little while because I saw okay. the debate on Twitter. But, it was raging, wasn't it? <laughs> actually, I didn't. I didn't check my replies on that. So, okay, this is interesting. You can tell. You me. ruffled some feathers with that oh, one. You, you, oh yeah. I always do. People always think that I get too excited. Okay, right. This is good. But I actually thought De Gea. He kicked it long twice in the late in the late stages, including for that free kick, and, and I think Martinez was actually available for a short pass. And it just that's what Palace were, were looking for: loose balls in the middle of the pitch, driving forward, get a get a free kick, get a set piece, put United under pressure. And I just think United could have been more sensible with their use of the ball in the second half. Yeah, Andy, you summed it up at full time um, when you said something happens. I'm sure everyone knows that phrase. Um, <laughs> it did feel like it was coming because um, the second half was just nowhere near the first half, was it really? And even the first half needed a little bit of improvement here and there. There was, there was good points in there, there was positives, but the, the second half was sloppy really, wasn't it? Why do you think that was? I thought they looked tired. I thought it was like coming back down to earth after the the four-day high of the Manchester derby. I was still buzzing off that even before the Crystal Palace game. I thought Manchester United played well in the first half. Bruno's goal was excellent. And you're just thinking, we're on it here, 10. 
I was thinking of tweeting something like one zero ten straight wins, ten more points than at the same point ten last season. Ten, uh, yeah, you're smarter than me because I should have put that at the end. Yeah, but anyway, never saw the light of day because of that brilliant free kick. At the end, it's the reality of being a football fan, isn't it? Eric Ten Argus said that there will be upsets along the way. There always will be. Every team drops points at some point, and it just stung a bit because. Didn't really give Manchester United much time to get back into it. Although, did you see that ball flash across Casemiro's thighs? Hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just like it came too hmm. quickly for him. Yeah, it stung. Uh, during the match, I was Googling live Premier League table. We're second. <laughs> just check. We're second, second, second. We beat Arsenal at the weekend. And it felt brilliant. But then it... What it gives, it takes away from you. If Casemiro had leapt into that shot, like he leapt into the tackle, it'd be 2-1, wouldn't it? <laughs> Imagine that. The people would have been on the pitch after that one. Well, I know one fan did go on the pitch anyway to get a picture with Casemiro at one point. which would... he posed for it. <laughs> he posed for it. Can we talk about that? That was utterly bizarre. So there's a stoppage <laughs> in play. You know, Crystal Palace player going down injured. Looks like a substitution's happened. And this fan has run from the far end of the field, manages to get close to Casemiro, wrap his arm around him. Casemiro is, you know, serene, quite calm, doing it quite well, poses with the selfie. And it's only when he's posing with the selfie that everyone just sort of turns and goes, Who's that guy? <laughs> the stewards are bamboozled. Christian Eriksen's quite close by going, What on earth is going on? It's only after the selfie is done, Casemiro sort of does his hands up and sheepishly walks back. And, and then Lissandro Martinez sort of puts two and two together and goes, oh, you, you're not meant to be him, pushes him off the field. Um, you know, On this podcast, and I know opposition fans have wondered, how on earth does Casemiro get away with so many fouls? And I think this incident is a good mm. incident. Like, you know, Andy can verify <laughs> this. Spanish newspapers often say Casemiro has an invisibility cloak, that you just can't see him until for reasons. And I think that fan incident is just that weird thing of Casemiro can be so calm in moments where others are panicking, that you almost don't go, wait, what What on earth is that? Utterly bizarre. It makes it feel normal. I know what you mean by that. L- let's talk about the booking then. L- there's the question, the obvious question, should he have played, etc., etc., which I will ask, but it was more for me. Did he actually need to do that, Laurie? I thought he did. Uh, my, my initial thing was, it, this is dangerous here, and he does have this, I know Carl is absolutely spot on that he kind of gets away with stuff, but it is weird that he, he does commit fouls that are pretty bad fouls that he kind of manages to avoid getting caution for. It was for. pretty bad, wasn't it? I mean, they, they were in the studio, they were talking about it being possible red, which I think is, is wrong. Like, I mean, it, it wasn't like a vicious, it, but it was quite high. A put, fabled orange card. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I said it was the most yellow booking you're going to see. But I, I thought it was, I thought it was a dangerous situation, and he was obviously annoyed, wasn't he, at Bruno for for, for sort of shying out of a, a similar tackle. If Bruno had done that to the player that he, that nicked it away from him, and, and he got a book in, you know that would have just stopped it there. And, and okay, Bruno can take a book in. Um, so I think Casemiro was was obviously upset at him about that. But on reflection, there, there was Varane covering. I don't know, maybe he could have allowed it, but it's it's you know it's one on one. It's it's in the box. It's a it's a tricky situation to allow to develop. So I personally felt that he did need to do that. Carl, you wrote in your piece, people can go and read your take from last night, of course, on The Athletic, but you wrote that maybe one of his teammates could have ensured that he didn't need to be in a situation where he felt he had to make that challenge. And that feeds into what Laurie was saying about Bruno Fernandes maybe making a similar challenge a little earlier in that move. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes we talk about teams sharing a yellow card or you protect 
your player who's on a booking already by making the, the challenge for him. Uh, possibly Wambasaka could have got there in time to Zaha if you, 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 if I'm forgetting how acceleration works and being particularly generous. If, if you listen to Wilf Zaha, he did expected Aaron Wambasaka to get there. Yeah, yeah. Those extendable legs could have just reached out, possibly. We'll definitely give Wambasaka his flowers on this podcast a bit later yeah. on. Yeah, um, definitely. Because he was he was exceptional. I, yeah, I do totally agree in that that wasn't. It was a challenge that Casemiro often has to make for Manchester United, but considering the circumstances, it would have been nice if someone had gone, no, Cass, move, mine. I'll do it. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it, I think what's quite interesting is Casemiro is going to make 70 to 80% of his tackles for Manchester United. He, his positioning is really good. He's also really good at that sort of delaying a tackle where when uh, the opposition is flooding forward, he'll just stand in the right position and go, go on then, go on then. I dare you to make the pass because I'm stood in the right area. But there are those two or three times, and I would say only two or three times in a game, where he isn't able to make the tackle, he isn't in the right place initially. And you can just see how porous United are. You saw it in that booking. You saw it in the FA Cup game against Everton when Casemiro went off and Calvert-Lewin scored that offside goal. There is a soft underbelly that is concerning. And I think that's why, as Laurie observed, Steve McLaren seemed very unhappy when Casemiro got his booking. Mm. Yeah, he properly slouched down in his seat. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Andy, did he need to play? We're talking now after the event, aren't we? And we can see it in through a slightly different lens and say, why didn't he play Fred or Scott McTominay? I think he probably did need to play. Crystal Palace under Patrick Vieira are a good team. United really struggled to overcome them at Old Trafford last year. If you remember in Ralph Rangnick's game where he had to change his tactics. And then at Palace away last year, that was a horrendous performance. Palace won that game. United played in pre-season, but Palace were so short of players on that because I think a lot of them had not been vaccinated to get into Australia. So, I mean, everything was going well for Casemiro up until that point. I thought he was, along with Aaron Wambasaka, he was the best player. The things which we praise him for all the time, he was doing them and he was standing out. His anticipation, his passing, he was good in the air, closing the spaces down, helping Manchester United dominate the game and then bang... He gets the booking. Can any good come from it? I'm hoping that Scott McTominay and Fred are seeing the reaction to this and thinking, actually, I'm not a bad footballer. I can prove a point here. I can go to Arsenal at the weekend and show that I've actually been man in a match against really good teams in this league. Well, Ten Hag said after the game, we beat Arsenal last time without him, so we can do it again. He's right. Let the record show, Andy Mitten's just called uh, Crystal Palace on the Patrick Vieira a good team. So, long-time listeners... It's Brentford, Brighton, Palace, and it's probably two or three others, but now they've got the official Andy Mitten classification of a good team. I think I said Fulham were as well. There you go. So <laughs> I look at Palace and I think if, if they're established in, in the Premier League, I don't think Patrick Vieira was a good manager at Nice. Nice are owned by Sir Jim Ratcliffe. We could go right off on one there, couldn't we? Oh, Andy, ne- oh, well, let's save that for the next part. We'll save that for another part. <laughs> you wrote. Carl, that it was Aaron Wan-Bissaka's best game on the ball for Manchester United, or one of the best games on the ball. And add that to the derby, in terms of an advert for the, the, the difference in Manchester United, Aaron Wan-Bissaka in these last few matches, the turnaround is as stark as anyone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's getting a nice little scooped cross to the far post, which uh, I think two or three times we've joked about how Wan-Bissaka just can't get it in there. Or two or three times where I think under Edison Cavani or other strikers they've sort of put their arm up 
and Wan Bissaka's like, no, I can't, I can't hit that. Whereas he's now able to get that ball over there. It's not always hitting the target, but he's working on it. He's also having two or three nice dribbles around um, defenders as well. And of course, the slide tackles are still there. I think he's recovery tackle on Wilfred Zaha in the 92nd minute. You, you say that a tackle as good as a goal because to be able to get back and time it on Zaha in the way you did and not give away a penalty, absolutely exceptional. Um, and, and Ten Hag seems quite pleased with his progression since the start of the season. He did one in the first half on Zaha as well, didn't he? That was basically a one-on-one that if he misses, then you know it's a goal-scoring opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because we were talking about this before we started recording. Basically, playing against Wilfred Zaha in training for Crystal Palace was how the club discovered that Wambasaka might actually be a brilliant defender after all. Because one on one against him, um, he was he was great in training, and obviously that was a big reason he's one on one defending why United turned down all those hundreds of right backs to sign him under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I always forget the exact number. It always feels exaggerated. 804, it 804 is the number. Right. 804 is the full, the full number. So I've got it lodged in my mind. So he turned down 800 803 and... others. Sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, it, but he was a winger, wasn't he, at that point? When, yeah. he, when he kind of got roped into Palace training. So it's kind of weird that the on the ball stuff is what we sort of consider the area that he needs to improve on because it, it was what he was coming through doing. So it's an interesting. Um, sort of dynamic there and how you develop as your career progresses I suppose but yeah I thought it was a really great defensive display from him last night Zaha you could tell couldn't you in the post-match interview was just like no not this guy any other player as I'm running through I look back I had a little look back and I thought oh my god it's Aaron he's the only one that can do the scoop tackle so yeah it was a great tackle I can't I can't say anything about it <laughs> yeah they're good mates as well still I understand so you, you could see that coming through what a turnaround for him go back to the start of last month in Cadiz he got absolutely destroyed in the first 15 minutes it, and I just thought where is the future going now for Aaron Wambasaka and Shows our football concern quite quickly. Delo's injured. He comes in. He does well. Does better and better. I agree with Carl. I thought he had a very good game. At home, comfortable in South London. Against a team with quite strong Palace connections. Dougie Friedman's a neighbour of Sir Alex Ferguson. There's quite a few Manchester United fans on the staff at Crystal Palace. I won't name them and, and embarrass them. But there's loads. And they're very professional about doing the job. And, and Will Hughes, United actually looked at him about seven years ago. And I was watching him last night thinking, I like the cut of you. You're aggressive. You're going up against world-class players and you're looking at him as if to say, yeah, and what are you going to do about it? Chris Richards, actually, he posted about being a boyhood Manchester United fan and fulfilling a bit of a dream. Played against United last night. He was pretty good against Marcus Rashford, to be fair to him as well. And yeah, so and, and, and even another Manchester United link with Crystal Palace. Maybe United should adopt Palace as a feeder club. I don't know. Oh, Andy. Oh, Andy. <laughs> Sorry. Carl Wright, you're from North East London. What do you think is easier? Walking to the North Pole in flip-flops in winter or getting from North East London to Sellers Park <laughs> using road <laughs> during rush hour? Because oh. the lads who went from Manchester on the coach last night, they set off earlier and earlier each year, but still only arrived like six minutes before kick-off because oh, that traffic in South London. <laughs> I've got two or three good mates who have moved to Croydon and they're like oh yeah you know we're having a house party it's in Croydon I'm like, I'm not coming I'm just not I'm not I'm not doing I'm not don't do Croydon book a week off I'm not doing Croydon I'm not I know they've got trams and, and that's fine but I've got trams in Manchester now I'm set I'm, I don't eat Croydon 
episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Right, before we move on then to preview the match at the Emirates on Sunday, there's just a few issues to tidy up from last night. Laurie, I'll come to you because I know you probably feel the most passionately about this particular issue of the four of us. But was it a penalty? And was there an argument for a red card with the elbow from Mateta on Martinez? Yeah, I mean, am I alone here with the red card thing? Because, like, the yeah. commentators didn't seem particularly fussed. I like, think you're alone. He, 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 does, he goes to do him. Like, and the, the reason why I say this is because, like, moments before, Martinez, who I thought had a really good game, actually, his passing was, was important from the back into midfield. But he, he got tight to him and he, he nicked the ball off him. So I'm, I'm thinking, if you're the striker next time, you're thinking, right, I'm going to make sure my, pre- my presence is felt. I'm not saying that he's deliberately, like... Sh- you know, shanked an elbow into his forehead, but he looks where he is, and it's a point, and it's an aggressive movement, and Martinez is bleeding afterwards and having to have a bandage, and no booking whatsoever. Like it just seems bizarre to me that that you can you can do that. What about the penalty? The penalty, I think, I think it's a penalty. McTominay is, I think, anticipating the contact. I think if you look at his left leg, he is making sure that there's contact there. But nevertheless, it's a penalty. He's nicked the ball in front of Richards. He's uh, missed it. He's put his leg across. It's a penalty. And the reason, in my opinion, why uh, Robert Jones, the referee, wasn't sent to the VAR screens, and again, maybe I'm getting conspiracy theory here and maybe I'll get brought up on an FA charge, but at the weekend at St. James's Park, he had this like kind of weird period where he didn't give a penalty for Andreas Pereira getting tugged back by Dan Byrne, which was a clear penalty, then got sent to the VAR for the, for another sort of penalty that he didn't give seconds later, which was Bobby Reed getting sort of tripped up by Trippier, which actually wasn't a pen on reflection, but he gave it as a pen. So I'm just thinking, is the VAR like thinking, listen, Rob Jones, you've not called it there. I'm just going to give you a day off. I'm not going to call you out on this mistake. Because that, that's, I referees do, they're not, they're not robots, they do have human emotions and they're looking out for their colleagues. Laurie, do you feel better? Yeah, I feel better now. Is Laurie watching Newcastle games now? Sort of opposition scouting for top four race? I just enjoy watching match of the day. All right. I, d- I don't go that crazy, Carl. All I'm not right. that sad All where right, I'm watching then. full-on matches. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. <laughs> right, let's take it back to last night without Veghorst and his Manchester United debut, Carl. You were there. You saw the great man leading the line for United. What did you think? He was okay. I would give that a, a 6 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, so, third minute, had a little counter-attack where he was out of sync with Bruno Fernandes. I think Fernandes attempted a pullback and, and he just wasn't stood in the right place because I think he was expecting just a more traditional play to my feet. But things improved as the, as the game went on. His back-to-goal play was what you'd expect from a six foot six man who's been sculpted in the Bundesliga and whatnot. Yeah, there were two or three times where, again, United have these moments of pressure where Previously, under a different striker, the move would collapse because they don't have the back-to-goal game. But Veghorst just went, all right, Will Hughes, if you want to come around the back of me, I'm just going to hold this, flick it out to Bruno, and we can keep the move going. He did one uh, in, I want to call that 17th minute, did another one a bit later on. uh, And 
yeah, he he was good when defending a couple of set pieces as well. He pressed as well, didn't he? He, he worked hard, to be fair to him. You, you can expect that, that maybe he's not quite up to speed with his teammates and, you know, that understanding or lack of with Bruno. I, I get that, considering it's his debut and he's probably only had a handful of training sessions. He's seen one United game in the flesh, the derby before that. What did you think, Andy? He's had free training sessions, so you're right to point that out. I thought Eric Ten Hag's description of him after the game where he said he was quite good was quite accurate. He was quite good. And quite's never going to be good enough for Manchester United in the long term. But there were some nice touches. Um, I think I was a little bit surprised that, that he started the game. I'm glad that he's come. I know you liked the look of him, Ian, before the game. We were discussing that a little bit. So, okay, you know, if he, if he would have scored a header and... Manchester United would have gone two 0 up. Everything would have been great, but just just he's in his first week at the club. He needs time to settle in. He's going to get a lot of opportunities, I think. Uh, what worries me more is that Manchester United are still not a prolific team. There's there's not a lot of goals in that team. Well, when Marcus Rashford isn't firing like he wasn't last night, yeah. you, you're sort of looking around for something else, aren't you? And obviously Bruno got the goal, but there wasn't much from the other attackers on that pitch, really, was there? In terms of a goal threat. There's not. It was only Bruno's fourth goal of the season. There's times when Bruno's scored. Oh, that no, yeah, really low. It's, it's quite a low, low amount. And Anthony Martial is not scoring even when he's playing he's not playing. quite well. No, but when he does, you know, he's 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 not um, but prolific. Marcus has become prolific, but you can see why Eric Ten Hag wanted more uh, strikers, more options. Uh, Jaden Sancho is back. Best case scenario is that um, he starts to play again and fulfills the potential that he's absolutely got. Um, he's back training with the first team. He came back into Carrington, working last week with Axel Tuanzebe. Got to keep that, Andy. Cheers, mate. Would I expect him to start v Arsenal? Nah, I, I, I wouldn't. But it's all pointing in the right direction. And I do have faith in Eric Ten Hag's management of his players. And given the number of games we've just been discussing how many games we could have in February alone we've got the Leeds games got to be reorganised as well this Barcelona game I know we'll all be excited about it but it's two more games if Manchester United were to go through that so he really does need players because we've touched on a couple of times about did Manchester United look tired against Crystal Palace it's relentless Uh, and I think that actually it's not a situation he would have wanted because he would have wanted Casemiro available for this Arsenal game. Let's move it on to Arsenal and, and preview the match on Sunday. It's a huge game for United. It, it is an opportunity for Fred and McTominay, Laurie. It's the, it's the type of chance that can allow them to prove that they should be used more because if there is tiredness in the United camp, it's in midfield where you imagine they're feeling it most because that trio of Bruno, Eriksen and Casemiro has played so much together. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they really do gel well um, and I think the goal um, against Palace was an example of that. I know Casemiro wasn't involved in, in it, but the, the link-up between Eriksen and Bruno was, was really sharp. And, and Rashford, to be fair, I, I thought he made that goal but by the fact that he sort of slow play down and then injected um, the, the speed with a really quick pass, kind of caught Palace napping a little bit. But yeah, they're both Casemiro and Eriksen, players that are over 30 and that they're playing every week, you know, um, you know basically full match. I know Eriksen's perhaps come off a few times um, to get a bit of rotation. But um, yeah, I mean, Fred did a great man-marking job on um, Kevin De Bruyne. I wonder if you know the same kind of thing will be employed on Martin Odegaard, who seems to be you know the star of the Arsenal team. I know they're basically a lot of good players playing together on on the same level, but he's in he a lot better be form than De Bruyne really... was heading into the Manchester derby. To be honest, yeah, 
he looked really sharp against Spurs mm. and he got a great goal McTominay started the 3-1 against Arsenal so that's obviously what Derek Ten Hag is alluding to when he's saying we, we beat him without Casemiro previously he came on for the last 10 minutes after the game was already kind of won at 3-1 up uh, and I do think McTominay I know he probably got criticised in the last night by fans for, for he came on and then the, the game sort of went away from United but I think he does give United, uh, I don't know, a, a different dynamic to Casemiro. Yeah, he's, he's not probably someone that will sit deeper and anticipate and intercept. I mean, Casemiro against Palace, you know, the interceptions were, were superb. You know, the, the kind of times that he read the way that play was going. He, he looked Before that booking, he looked like he was going to manage the game absolutely um, perfectly. Um, but I think McTominay perhaps gives a little bit more drive from midfield and, you know, can even play more advanced. So, so maybe it, it requires a tweak in how United are going to operate. Um, I don't know if he would start all three. He, he could do. I mean, Anthony, uh, we touched on it a little bit, wasn't wasn't great against Palace again. Um, I think it's just the the fact that he, he seems to not... The counter-attacks that, he, that obviously United are so great at, or, or that's what they've had their best moments in, the transition, he seems not to quite be on the same wavelength or not have the speed. He did beat uh, his man on the outside, actually, at one point in the first half, I think it was, um, and got a corner. But <laughs> your eyebrows are raised, Ian. Um, and, it, and that was just a, a case of attrition, really. It wasn't like skill or anything like that. So does he start on the bench, actually, against Arsenal? And, and does Ten Hag kind of start with a, a you know, a kind of a, a more, uh, a team that's, a, that's, that's in response to Arsenal's attacking threat to begin with? I can see that. Yeah. Casemiro being out is a, is a big drawback for United just because he's looked so composed and he's, he's been even the passing range that he's got you know he's been central to a lot of United's um, good moments in an attacking sense from deep obviously put the pass through to uh, Bruno Fernandes that was always intended for Bruno Fernandes against Manchester <laughs> City so that that will be a miss but I don't know I, you hope you get the feeling from Ten Hag that he will sit down and construct a plan that is actually going to cause Arsenal some problems, at least to break them down and then hopefully on the attack as well. I do like Ten Hag's we beat him without Casemiro before comment. That's the sort of thing you, you want a Manchester United manager to G up everyone. I hate to be that awful specky nerd and say, yeah, but Arsenal were also missing players as well. But yeah, they were missing some personnel that are likely to start. Thomas Partey wasn't playing, was he, in that first game? He was not. And I think Arsenal now have got to a critical mass of very good players that, yes, okay, let's say Fred can man mark Martin Odegaard. Okay, well, now who are you going to have be the stopper when they progress the ball from deep via Granit Xhaka or Mr. Party as well? Or, yes, okay, Manchester United were good in the derby because Bruno Fernandes and Marcus Rashford tracked their wide runners further than before, but it's very different having to track Martinelli compared to having to track someone like Phil Foden, for example. That's another reason why I think Bruno Fernandes will play on the right wing because you've got Zinchenko to deal with, you've got Xhaka in a similar area to deal with uh, and I just trust Bruno to to do that job more than Anthony at this point and of course he did that in the derby, Carl, as well, didn't he, to, to good effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I talked to Ten Hag after the derby but the quotes weren't allowed out until a bit before the Palace game. Every press conference is like that at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in, the, in that staggered thing, so... Um, I, I did say, you know, Bruno Fernandes, one man a match, played on the right hand side. Why do you like that? And he said he, he likes the way how Bruno Fernandes is able to receive the ball between the lines, in particular on the right hand side. We know Adam Crafton had that great interview with Bruno, and Bruno says sometimes I just stand where the ref is, and that's a really good way to receive between the lines as well. Uh, but he did mention that defensive intensity. He did say 
the way Bruno pl- plays and yells and runs and conjoles everyone it is really important for setting the tone. Uh, and while we're talking about Anthony and Anthony's interesting game, did did you all see Anthony and his industrial Portuguese language towards Bruno <laughs> at South West Park? Yeah. Uh, Andy, do you know what was exactly said? Because I think your Portuguese is better than mine. <laughs> putting a bit of hope on my Portuguese there, mate. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I saw them... D- um, you something of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we all know what, what, what was said. I don't mind players arguing on, on the pitch. You saw when Bruno scored, Anthony was one of the first players to, to celebrate with him. As Laurie mentioned, Anthony's performances are, are definitely a debating point at the moment. As Carl said, uh, Bruno Fernandes was picked out as man of the match by Eric Ten Hag on Saturday. We saw those quotes. We talked. He talked about uh, defensively what he does on the right, the world's un- most unlikely combinations, Aaron Wambasaka and Bruno Fernandes, but that might ha- be how it is at Arsenal. Justifiably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, I've got no issue with, with that, nor with the man-marking idea. Arsenal's home record is the best in the league. They've won seven, drawn one against Newcastle United. That was actually the last home game, a nil-nil, and they haven't lost one. Well, they've only lost one game all season against a team called the mighty Manchester United, the 20 times champions of England. Eric Tenag planned for that derby game tactically. And that's, this is what Rafael Varane picked out. And the players were confident going into the match, knowing that they had a match plan. And that's something that Manchester United have been really good at with Ten Hag. And I know that they're studying Arsenal deeply. This is not a team who's going to go there thinking, what can we get away with here? He'll go and he'll try and beat them. I think that's fantastic. The last game at Arsenal, last April was a really interesting game because United didn't play that badly in parts, but were completely taken apart. You can't make a comparison with the United of last April to now because it is it is completely different. I think Arsenal will be favourites, but I don't think Eric Tenag will be completely uneasy about that. Yes, he'd like Casemiro back. Yes, Arsenal look really formidable, but I reckon Arsenal got a little bit in their psyche where they think Manchester United have just got something on them. I've got no hard evidence for that, no statistics, just a hunch. Let's see if I'm right on the next <laughs> podcast. I'd take a draw now. Would you take a draw, lads, all of you, Arsenal at the weekend? No, I want to beat Arsenal. No, because I think it's it's all or nothing now, isn't what it? What do you mean by that? As in, not all or nothing, but like, well, just just like you might as well go for it. You, you, you think that top four is probably okay. Like I, I'm not, I'm not hedging my bets too much there but I, okay okay raised eyebrows well, first okay I just think if they don't finish top four now it'd, it'd be a disappointment right United will finish in the top four I think so yeah so from from this point Tottenham look ropey Liverpool Chelsea I'm not saying that they they definitely should I just have that feeling and so I'm saying that okay if, if you you should go with an intention absolutely of winning so if, if, if it's 1-1 with like 10 minutes to go try and win the game that's what I'm saying. I'm saying don't settle because for the Because that draw. then pushes United back to us doing that thing where we're trying to calculate league tables and work out if this person doesn't <laughs> yeah. do this and that person doesn't do that. Yeah. It might actually yeah. bring us back to that moment again because that feels like such a long time ago and it's literally like three days, four days ago. <laughs> three days. I know. I know. Well, I remember going to Arsenal in November 1990, I think it was, and uh, 91. Arsenal were a brilliant team. Them and Liverpool were, were the champions on, on and off and they were clear favourites. It was a League Cup game. Manchester United had this acid blue Adidas away kit and the absolutely kit. destroyed them 6-2. One of the great games of Manchester United's modern history. I'll settle for 5-2 <laughs> at the Emirates at the weekend with Garnacho having his Lee Sharp moment. 
And all his family there to support him. Christ, having a Lee Sharp moment. Yeah, the beating, the beating Larson with six, seven defenders on the pitch, you know, like Raphael and, and Fabio in central midfield. Yeah. They, can, they can beat him with Fred and McTominay. That's the spirit. <laughs> one, one of my best memories of watching United at university was the 4-2 game. You remember when John O'Shea scored that chip at the end? Yeah, beautiful Ronaldo, game. Rooney, yeah. absolutely brilliant game. It was the Keenan uh, Vieira pre, pre-match, wasn't it? That the Keenan Vieira is best remembered for that, in fairness, yeah. So I, I'm in the halls of residence bar watching the game and um, basically got totally carried away when the fourth goal went in. I was on the phone to my dad, who was in the local pub at home watching the game, going, John O'Shea scored, John O'Shea. And I'm literally stood up in the middle of this bar shouting. And I had that moment where I pulled the phone away from my ear, looked around the room, and there's literally only me stood up shouting <laughs> in the entire bar. <laughs> it was like the height of anyone but United, basically. So, you know, if you've supported right. Chesterfield or Chelsea or whoever, you were supporting <laughs> Arsenal that day. <laughs> it's just me on the phone to my dad shouting, bloody hell, John O'Shea's just chipped the key. This is amazing. What a game. What a game. What a kit that was. Yeah, I got I got so carried away that match. Fantastic game. Nothing wrong with that. It was brilliant. You know what United could do? This could be a good solution, right? The transfer window's still open, yeah? It is. I'm listening. Anderson is 34 and he's a free agent. (laughs) Anderson seriously reckons that he he, he destroyed Arsenal that much whenever he played against them that Fergie had to tell him to calm down and go easy on him, right? This is his version. (laughs) There is still time to sign Anderson, put him in central midfield at the weekend... 34, I'm sure he's in absolute prime fitness, Anderson. I'm sure he's not been distracted at all. Noted gym rat, Anderson. Andy, (laughs) you're missing somebody else. Go on. Phil Neville, second him from Inter Miami. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That was when Phil Will Tear You Apart was first born. I know it's now turned on to Fred Will Tear You Apart, but I'm sure Phil Neville, that game to stop Arsenal going 50 unbeaten... He was immense in that game. He was. Get him back. He was. Probably Phil Neville's best ever game as a Manchester United player. But Phil is a manager. Anderson is just waiting there. He's sat on Fine. the beach now, waiting for Eric Tenard <laughs> to say to him. Going you mean he's drill. on the treadmill? He's on the treadmill. <laughs> he is. I love it, though. That Yeah, he's doing laps on the beach. Far harder than the treadmill. I love it, though, that he reckons that Ferguson told him to calm down because he was too good against Arsenal. And it, the implication was it wasn't fair on Arsenal because like, we'd already put eight past him. He just said, I just, I just used to kill the Arsenal whenever I played him. And Patrice, everyone's called them babies as well. That really riled the Arsenal players. I'm pretty sure Wes Brown was selected by Ferguson sort of six weeks in advance to say, right, Arsenal's there. Wes, you're going to be playing that game. I might not play you in any of the five matches running up to it, but you're definitely playing against Arsenal because there was something about that game that brought something out in him as well. You were talking about a a terrorist chant a moment ago, uh, Laurie, and Andy, your piece about the support... Um, around the Manchester derby the chance and everything else that went with it is up on the athletic people may have seen it they can go and read it now do you want to give it a quick plug I just made notes throughout the derby game of the songs going back and forward from the 3000 City fans and the rest of Old Trafford and I think that piece worked a lot better given that Manchester United won the game City were really loud after they scored United became really loud after those goals went in it's one of the loudest atmospheres we've known I heard a City fan complain to me afterwards. We sang the same eight songs. Actually, City sang loads of different songs. The United Songbook is really um, varied. I think for a lot of people who aren't actually Old Trafford, they can't make the songs out. So 
I like writing about fan culture. I made a note of all of them and just listed them in in that format as the game went on in, in chronological order. There's lots of humour there. And on another level, I find it really interesting that you have these men, it's predominantly men, pretty restrained in their working life, and they go to the game and sing at each other. And and then say that you're not you're not as loud. There's something bizarre about it, isn't it? You're not as loud as me. You know. Yeah. I couldn't hear you. Well, I couldn't hear you. It's so subjective, and the, the, the truth's all over the shop. You know. City couldn't even hear City today. Well, we all sat right in the middle of both sets of fans. I heard both sets of fans yeah. really clearly. Like City, at least we stayed till the end. Yeah, we had to stay to the end because you were locked in. City were singing Fleetwood Mac at the end of the match. And I went to the Stratford end and loads of like the, the Red Army section were still singing. It was it was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed it. I also really enjoyed the fact that you, again, documented the chance directed at the ownership situation. Because, you know, one of the jabs often made to Manchester United fans is, oh, your team's winning and now you're not talking about you know, protesting your owners and protesting the state of your football stadium where... As Andy will show you, actually they were, and they they're not going away. Yeah, if you want to read more about the Manchester derby chance, Andy's piece is up on the Athletic at the moment. Remember, if you're not a subscriber, there's a special podcast price at the moment: one pound ninety nine a month for a year when you sign up at theathletic.com forward slash Man United Pod. Okay, people have been listening to this and being very patient because I think we'll all probably tease the fact that we'll be talking about the latest on Manchester United being bought, potentially, um, in the tweet links and it'll probably be in the description as well and they've sat through 40-odd minutes or whatever of us pontificating about Palace and other assorted issues ahead of Arsenal. So, Laurie Whitwell, what is the very latest on this? Matt Slater's piece is on The Athletic. What's your understanding? Yeah, I think it's a significant development in that uh, Ineos, owned by Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who we know uh, grew up a Manchester United fan, although he also went to Chelsea games when he was in London, lived in London. Um, they have declared that they are in the process of uh, trying to buy Manchester United, which means that they can get a look at the accounts and there's more kind of official uh, trading information rather than kind of being on the periphery and kind of declaring your interest a little bit. This is a, a formal uh, introduction into the process and they are the first, he is the first um, person to put his hand up and say, yeah, I'm serious about this. Um, there is interest from elsewhere, um, but we don't know the exact makeup of it and uh, whether that will actually then turn into something more official. So this is the kind of starting gun on the process to uh, see who could take over from the Glazers. Is it going to be a full takeover? Is it going to be a minority investment? One of the things from Ratcliffe's point of view that I'm told is that he wants a full takeover. This isn't something where he's going to pay for you know, 20 30% to be in partnership with the Glazers. Um, yeah, I very much believe that that's the case. Um, and I don't think it's yet been determined what his bid proposal will look like because you know he's obviously personally a very wealthy man, but to buy Manchester United, 
you know, they're, they're talking six, seven billion. I don't think he would value the club at that amount. You know, he, he made a bid for Chelsea, which was 2.5 billion plus 1.75 billion in investment for the stadium and for for um, for the squad, which was which was the same as the Todd Bowley um, bid that, that was successful. Um, so I think that's, you know, more the kind of uh, realm that he's looking at with Manchester United. Um, will that be enough? We don't know. I presume the Glazers will go to the highest bidder. I don't think they would be looking at a situation like Sir Jim Ratcliffe and thinking, actually, this guy is from Oldham. Um, you know, uh, he's clearly got sporting uh, background with uh, the cycling team with with Nice, as Andy's touched on. Um, he could be a good owner for Manchester United. I think they. I think personally, they're going to go for the highest bidder. Now, that would then obviously bring into the question of the likes of Qatar, Saudi Arabia. Dubai has been mentioned, although everything I, I'm told about Dubai is that they don't actually have that kind of resource. You know, they were bailed out by Abu Dhabi uh, twice since the financial collapse in 2008. So would they, you know, facilitate a takeover of Manchester United? And, and there's US investors as well. You know, we saw those with, with the Chelsea bid. I think they'll come to the fore again for Manchester United. Um, but it's, it's going to be a jockeying now, isn't it? Like, I mean, how much does fan support for a particular bid play into the whole decision making process it's it's rain the bank that are handling this um and they will um have the conversations with the prospective buyers uh, investors uh, and then it will be tabled with the glazers and then they'll have you know that that time to make a decision on what they want to do with the club yeah there's an interesting point in there andy about why sir jim radcliffe is being so public in his attempt to buy manchester united do you think it is to harness fan support in in a bid to make him the popular option, stroke, get the price down? No, because there are ways of doing that and he isn't currently doing that. It, this is all coming through Matt Dickinson, who's breaking the stories around Jim Ratcliffe. So, so why so public then? I, I think because he might want people to come in with him. By saying it publicly, you are saying, I'm absolutely serious about this. It's an advert. Yeah, and the other thing is, as, as a publicly listed company if you're asked a direct question or your press office is by a journalist your obligation is usually to tell the truth and that that happened that was the chain of events which happened Matt Dickinson who wrote a really good book about Manchester United's treble win last year by the way he he asked the question and he's reporting on it and Laurie's writing everything he says the the Glazers will want an auction type scenario it's got to start moving at some point. This isn't going to be playing out over years. You'd like to think it's going to be played out over months. I'm, I'm circumspect with whoever comes in. I get the backstory with Sir Jim Ratcliffe and the, the Manchester links, but these people are ruthless. The, Jim Ratcliffe has been ruthless in, in his line of, of business. In You might not have as many ethical questions attached to him as where some of the other bids will come into. I think there's definitely a better ownership model than the Glazers. I don't want to see a repeat of of more debt being loaded onto Manchester United. And I look at what's happening with Chelsea and it scares me because right from the start, I could see that it's not just about money. And actually, I think Manchester United are doing all right now. There's a lot of good people there. It's not by fluke that some of these people have ended up at Manchester United. I think the recruitment is much better. The manager's a good manager. So whoever comes in has got to be sensible. And custodians of the club have got to be respectful. Obviously, from a fan perspective, I worry about issues like like ticket prices. We know the massive big ticket issues like the stadium development, 
improvement of, of Carrington. But, you know, Richard Arnold, I hear good things about him. Better things than Ed Woodward. But he's obviously associated with the Glazers. Does someone just come in and just get rid of all of those people? There's a lot of talented people working at Manchester United. And I say that because I compare them to other clubs and I don't just write about Manchester United. And I actually think there's some quite sensible people there at the moment. And that's one reason why the team's winning. And the manager's clearly massively important. They don't want some balloon coming in and saying, look, you've got to sign in because I'm mates with his agent. And so I'm, I'm circumspect and will continue to be. I think it's always really important to look into Ineos and, and Mr. Ratcliffe's ownership of Nice and his other businesses as well. There's a fantastic piece on The Athletic about his time in charge of Nice and what sort of owner he's been at Nice so far as well. And yes, it's not. It's never going to be a one-to-one transference. I'm not saying this is a done deal or whatnot. But it, it's always interesting to learn, you know, if you're someone like Sir Jim Radcliffe, you didn't get that rich by accident. Uh, you have a pre- preferred way of doing business uh, and you try and carry that preferred way of doing business into as many businesses as you own, be it a football club, be it a Formula One team, be it a, a cycling team or whatnot. So uh, it's don't just stop at saying Sir Jim Radcliffe uh, earned all his money in, in charge of Petrochemical Company. Also look into how he did it as well. You can talk about Todd Bowley and he's actively at Chelsea, but one reason why he got so rich is because he, he's always thought of himself as an innovator and has always tried to be first to market in all of his businesses. He likes being a disruptor. He likes being the, oh, no one's tried it before. I'm going to do this, which lo and behold, now you've got all these contracts that look very, very strange to the Premier League viewers because no one's really done it before. That's how Todd Bowley likes to work. The Glazers earn their money via uh, retail real estate uh, as a business people as a family they tend to buy shopping markets shopping malls and they just go right okay and now we'll just take in money from residual income and now they run manchester united in a not dissimilar fashion uh so yeah i I advise do that learning before you start saying oh we've got a good rich benefactor because well i'm not going to reveal my political affiliations but i don't think that's a thing that's possible on this planet (laughs) laurie anything to add Finally, no, I like it. Just everything that the guys are saying, I think is is really pertinent. And it's always there's so much excitement, isn't there, and, and, and hope about the Glazers finally going. You know, it's been 18 years of loaded debt, and I, you can't get away from. I mean, you know, a billion pounds of debt. The cupboard's currently on. Anybody that is going to come in has to take that on board. But I do think that with this, there's hope, but there's also jeopardy. So let, let's just be, be mindful to that. Let's not kind of be blinded by the fact that it's not the Glazers. So I do think it's it still is a a, a period where it, it can't be it can't be worse than it is because the way that the Glazers run the club is just to have put debt onto it, and you know I, I just don't think that's a sustainable practice. And, and we're seeing it now with the loans in January. You know that's all they've got left money wise. And Andy's talking about um, players that would have been sold. Um, if United can actually get good at selling players, then maybe that would help buying players as well. That is an aspect I think that I think they are addressing the, the people currently there as well. But you know, I don't think you can say that it couldn't be better. You know, if, if people do come in and, and kind of want to have a look at the, the structures and and what's in place. But yeah, I do. I, I echo what the guys are saying that I think you need to make sure that you're aware of the whole picture as to who's coming in because yeah, people who have money have methods and, and ways of doing things that you might want to just pay attention to. 
Okay, well, if you want to get the very latest, of course, on potential developments on this story, it's on The Athletic. Matt Slater already has a couple of pieces up there with the latest on Jim Radcliffe's bid and also a backgrounder as to what sort of owner he might make for Manchester United. There'll be more where that came from in the coming weeks, I'm sure, as well. Don't forget that special podcast price of £1.99 a month to sign up for a year when you subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. But before we go, on behalf of all four of us, and Laurie, I know you've already put out a video on Instagram that I'm sure people saw, but a huge thank you. Well, for always listening, but especially to the the post-Manchester Derby podcast that we did on Saturday at Old Trafford. If you've not listened to it, go back and have a listen to that. Our mood was maybe slightly different to when we were talking about Manchester United's fortunes at the start of this pod, but it's absolutely brilliant and very humbling, actually, to get so many positive comments from you guys at home. It's great to know that you're enjoying listening nearly as much as we're enjoying doing these podcasts. Uh, Keep supporting us, please. Keep listening. Keep giving us your feedback as well. It's great to know what you're enjoying, what you're not enjoying, um, questions that you've got for the guys as well. I try to work that into the pods as we go along. So brilliant. Thank you so much for everything. Carl, thank you. Andy, thank you. Laurie, thank you as well. We'll see you after Arsenal. Whatever happens, we'll be here to dissect it. Title race, no title race. Top four race, no top four race. Even though Laurie Whitwell doesn't think there is one now. So anyway, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. The Athletic.